if God be against us, who can be for us? And this, uh, that's uh, quite a, a staggering question. <laughs> we are used to the other way of, if God's for us, who can be against us? But I'm going to let the book of Nahum speak to this matter of what it means to have God against us. And I will, uh, before, I'm going to read the first chapter. I'm going to read down through verse 14. Actually, the 15th verse of the first chapter begins the movement of thought that goes on into the second chapter. So I'm going to read this first chapter in a moment with making some comments, and that will get us, uh, uh, have a, a feel for it. Though I'm going to concentrate most of my attention on verses 2 and 3, because I think they are the index verses for the entire 14 verses and in some ways for the entire book. So by intention, the principle that I'm going to work with tonight and the derivatives, the truths that come out of it will be in that that place. I need to say something about uh, the wider context, of, namely our context of life and what we face. We find ourselves today in a moral revolution, not moral change, revolution. <clears throat> I want to read something to you from a book that I recommend. I'm working my way through it. That uh, This uh, is a book by Al Mohler. Uh, it's entitled... Uh, We cannot be silent, speaking truth to a culture redefining sex, marriage, and the very meaning of right and wrong. And I'm quoting from on page three. He says, the moral revolution is now so complete that those who will not join it are understood to be deficient, intolerant, and harmful to society. And in case you missed it, that would be you. And for those of us who have grown up through decades by knowing that we live in a relatively friendly culture, I know you could question that culture is, we're to be countercultural and the culture doesn't give us the definite pointers we need toward God. I'm not suggesting that it does, but uh, things have gone up um, to much greater levels of intensity in that the culture is at war with Christianity. Our United States of America, its institutions, many of them, um, our president and uh, many politicians are at war with Christianity in, in a sense in which it's not, I've not, I'm not aware of anything before. I, I can tell you this, that uh, one little sh- culture shock I experience is I'm reading the biography by Chernow. I'm reading the, the biography of George Washington, and it's one of the top biographies. And so I'm lost in the 18th century, you know, the latter part of the, the 1700s and George Washington's life and becoming president. You know how it is you get into a book like that, and then you close the book, and then and then you begin to look around, you watch news, you hear things, and it's like you've just landed, at least this is my sensation, uh, I've come here from another planet. Um, I see such, what a contrast between the way, the ways in which founding, our founding fathers thought and their vision for America and what it was, not a Christian America, but deeply Christian influenced in that period of time, 
and then compare it to where we are today. It's quite, it's quite a shock. That's my own personal experience with it. All right, I don't want to linger long on going through, uh, I don't want to give how bad things really are kind of introduction. I think you probably are quite primed on that, but I will add this one more thing. One more thing is that I just had a brief uh, uh, experience with the AJC, and I, I look on the front page this morning, uh, and just to give a feel for where we are, I see such things as, of course, this uh, Religious Freedom Act that's coming up before the state legislature. Um, I'll be going to a meeting on, on that this Thursday. Uh, it's to get in. I'm not going necessarily because I'm for it, but I want to find out what's going on. And you'll see it. It's really hot in the news these days. I also see a headline there on the front page with regard to medical pot which has become kind of a really favorite project with the AJC and, uh, and a certain establishment in the state and, and nationally as well. And then I look at these kinds of things and see these uh, little, um, these moral directional signals, and it just uh, reminds me again of where we are. I'm, I talk to the, to the extent that I have the opportunity to talk to young people. I talked to a young man who is 18. I had lunch with him on Thursday, and uh, he's a student in college. And then I had some time with uh, my grandsons uh, last night, uh, talking to especially one of the older ones, the 18-year-old, Connor. And uh, I'm telling you, I feel a great burden for the young people. I feel a great burden for them. They are content. They're going to have to contend with a with a with an America, with a culture like none of us have had to deal with. And it's coming at them with full force and fury. And all parents need to be on high alert to this and before God in how to prepare our children for what is coming against them. Enough said on that. I'm going to read Nahum chapter 1, give you a few comments on this uh, we can't overstay that time to give you a feel for the location, the time, the place. Uh, we'll do that. Thank you for the uh, my uh, graphic arts department, again, for an excellent uh, uh, background picture. And are you with me now in verse 1? And uh, for those who may be guests here, um, I, I have to, uh, this looks a little odd, but I have to, I have notes in my Bible and I just don't have the time to make a transfer into um, uh, into about a 33 font kind of reading. So uh, that's what's going on here. All right, let's uh, follow with me along. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Perhaps this place is in southern Judah. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you want to flip. Some of you like maps, others of you could care less, but if you're the one who like maps, you could just flip back and forth because I'm going to be mentioned, focusing on places some to some extent. And so, therefore, this vision of Nahum, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Point. God allows no rivals. He will not allow competition. 
The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This is a very important um, uh, element in this chapter. You can see the thunder and the lightning of the wrath of God presented here, which we're going to be speaking up to. But you'll notice with that word, I have it circled in my Bible and with an arrow out into the margin, human responsibility. That God holds human beings, believer and unbeliever, fully responsible for their behavior. The Lord by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Uh, This was a reminder that Israel always needed. If you read the Old Testament carefully, you notice how much attention is given to nature, especially in the Psalms. And the, 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 the prophets, the psalmists, they are enthralled with nature in that God is the one who created nature. For you weather watchers, there is no mother nature. I I got an issue with that. Yes, I still do. I've heard it all my life. It's it's a dodge. (laughs) There is no mother nature. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Uh, I think there is a historical allusion here to the Red Sea. That was always right at the, on the first shelf, the bottom shelf in the minds of Israel and thinking about God and his might and what he could do. That story, as it was passed down from generation to generation, what might have been the visions in the minds of the young people and the children as their parents told them what their parents told them, what their parents told them, and those great, that great body of water being blown back and opened up and everybody, two or three million people walking through my, my Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. One is reminded here of storms and how they are used in scripture to picture the presence and power of God. The psalmist is that psalm what psalm is that? Whoops, I'm trying to grab it. I don't know, it's 20 or 25, somewhere in there. The great storm psalm. And then you have Elijah and uh, meeting with God and the lessons he needs to learn. And God uses earthquake and wind. Then you think of the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's wrestling with God over the problem of evil. And God comes to him with a final <coughs> answer. And he comes in a stupendous storm. And then, oh, you can go on with this. For those of you who enjoy storms, make that a personal study. I'm thinking of the one in Jonah. How God revealed himself in storms, the world, and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. Now, 
keep in mind that this prophet is addressing his message to Assyria, the great, the great Mr. Olympia of nations in that time and place in history. She had no equals as a nation. She trod over mercilessly all her opposition. And this language here is to make it very, very clear that God, not Assyria, has the last word. No matter how we may boast and vaunt and like the little, um, these little pygmy world leaders like the, the um, Korea, you know, we've set off a hydrogen bomb and just to intimidate and we quake. Did he really do it? But, you know, this kind of brinksmanship that nations do play with one another and might and power. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. And with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. That would be Nineveh. If you'd like to locate it on your map, it's presented to you in your news quite regularly. ISIS has a big chunk of it, and it's called Mosul. Mosul is on the site of ancient Nineveh. And he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. In other words, death and destruction. Whatever, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. Here he's describing the confusion of the Ninevites when they were attacked and that, that great empire and civilization did fall in a day in 612 BC. And he's describing the confusion, the panic as they run through the streets and it's just horrifying because they have been, they've been the, the, the bully on the block and now they are facing bullies bigger than they are. They are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord. Now, this could be one of the great uh, kings of Assyria named Sennacherib. Maybe so. Um, Sennacherib, if you remember your Old Testament history, he brought his army of thousands into the uh, into Israel up to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. And, and the, the story is given some special attention in Isaiah as well as in First Kings and uh, was threatening the city with complete destruction. And the Lord took care of him against the Lord. And it's, I'm, I'm going to come back and run at that verse again for from you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, wicked counselor. Now, that's an interesting term, and it teases the biblical imagination because literally it is a counselors of Belial. And it would seem to hint, it would hint at the satanic influence upon the leadership of Assyria. Now, that's not a stretch for if you know your, your theology and you know the role of demonic powers among nations. And we get evidences of that in the Old Testament. 
and how demonic, remember the book of Daniel and the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, these demonic powers who had sway and influence in the way in which nations moved and asserted themselves and against particularly against Israel. All right, well, I'll leave that. Let's go. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, and we're about to get the sentence, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted, I have afflicted you, probably referring to Judah in this that encounter with Sennacherib in 701 BC. I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you. That's Assyria. And I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image. Oh, the Lord's superiority to the nation's idol gods. Oh, they made much of these idol gods. It was, uh, we may look upon them somewhat amusingly as mascots, but believe me, to these nations, they had clout. These gods, whether in Babylon it was Marduk or Ashur in Assyria, but the Lord's superiority from the house of your gods, he will cut them off. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. God roars through the mouth of the prophet Nahum. All right, let's, uh, let's move along. War, disease, economic collapse, spiritual decline, uncertainties about the future. Am I talking about the United States of America in 2016? No, I'm talking about 7th century Israel and the prophets who ministered during that time, namely Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. God raised up these prophets to speak to the covenant nation Israel. It is, though, striking that the, 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 there are similarities in the conditions. The threat of international terrorism. Tyrannical regime in the regimes in the Middle East, Iraq, ISIS, political turbulence, economic problems, unemployment. Does it irritate you a little bit that China, if you have any investment in the stock market, can just really, China can ding you? I, I can't get over that. China could, the, the Chacoms can uh, affect our bank accounts, but they do. Israel's Israel's neighbors wanting to destroy her, as they do today. Oh, little Israel, outnumbered, encircled. I made the statement, um, before I thought it out, I made it, and then when I thought about it, I said, well, I think it's probably right. I think maybe the one nation that kind of is the bastion for uh, to guarantee freedom in this world and for it com- to completely keep it from completely coming dark would be Israel. You say, well, now, United States of America, I understand that our arsenal and our military still to a great extent backs up Israel. But I can tell you, Israel is ready for whatever may come to them. There is a reason why they are not attacked. They are some, but... There are those who want to destroy Israel, kill Israel. Well, no need to venture there. You know that. 
And also we must speak of a church that is doctrinally and spiritually weak. I'm alarmed at something. One of the things that is, I've noticed and been doing some, uh, Ed Sherwood and I, he's, he and I've been talking back and forth about this, is he's preparing this course on a biblical perspective on Islam that he's going to begin to teach next Sunday morning. That one of the things that, uh, is, I'm, we're discussing is this question, is Christian, or Christian, do Christianity and Islam worship the same God? Your answer to that will tell you a lot about your grasp of theology and the way things really are in this world. But I have some bad news for you. At least some polls are showing that at least 35% of evangelicals are saying that, yes, they do worship the same God, Christianity and Islam. That's a pretty serious failure. Pretty serious you want more on that, attend that class next Sunday morning. So what did God say to Israel through the prophet Nahum? What did he say? Two things. One, Nineveh is going to fall. You can go to the bank with that one. She's going to be judged by God for her crimes against humanity, her terrible atrocities. Well, there's Ed over there. I didn't know you got back, Ed. I was giving you a plug. Thank you. Shameless plug. You're right here. <laughs> All right. And the, the skeptic might rightly ask then, where then is your God? Oh, and the Assyrians would have, where is your God? Our God's better than bigger than your God because we can whip you any day on the battlefield. That's the way they measured it. And if he exists, what kind of God is he? You, cowering, afraid. And here we are as mighty and a formidable foe as we are. The second thing that the prophet did, particularly Nahum, is not only he said that none of us going to fall, Judah is comforted. There is comfort in this, in this prophet. God's in control. Reassurance is given regarding the sovereign purposes of God. Be at ease. Don't panic. The righteous Israelite might well have asked as did Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2. This is the prayer of every true remnant through the years. And here it is, Habakkuk. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Or how long, O Lord, how long? How long? How can you, Lord, this more and more innocent Christians, martyred, beheaded, tortured, Now, what we have here then in the book of uh, Nahum is that we have the prophet speaking to Assyria at the height of her power. Ashurbanipal. Any students of history know of Assyrian history? Well, I want to introduce you to a few things. Ashurbanipal waged wars. He was a great warrior king for Assyria. Cruelty, tearing off of limbs, not tree limbs. Putting out eyes, impaling, boiling in tar, skinning alive. He was arrogant, self-sufficient, cruel, assertive. And the Assyrians dominated every small nation in the region. They were the cat and all the other nations were the mice. And Israel was a mice among mice. And so that is Ashurbanipal. And I have a little something um, I want to read from. 
This is from uh, Will and Ariel Durant's uh, series on uh, history. And this one, our Oriental heritage. And here is a little something about Ashurbanipal. It's going to strike something in your mind to think, oh, that's interesting. This is extraordinary. Assyria? If Do I have my map up yet? Is Did that... Did that uh, yeah, thank you. All right, here. Uh, I want to show you a little something before I read this. Um, all right, you can see clearly enough the outline of ancient Assyria. This is all of their conquered territory at some time or another. But the empire of Assyria is located just right at the top of this, what we know as the Fertile Crescent. And here is Nineveh right there in a uh, two rivers, the Tigris and the Kosar River. The Kosar River uh, it plays a very important part in what happened in 612 B.C. when Assyria was destroyed. We'll get to that a little bit later because uh, the fact that uh, the, the city was located right there on the river is not lost on, the, uh, on her enemies. And so here, here's the territory in that area. Roughly, and uh, interestingly, roughly in a lot of the area which is occupied now by ISIS. I'm not trying to make anything other th- out of that at this point other than, um, you know, the demonic powers have been quite well entrenched in that area for millennia. And uh, I do find that interesting. But let me read you a little something about Ashurbanipal. And the reason we know this is Ashurbanipal was, uh, he liked books. He really was, though, he was a warrior, yes, he liked to kill people, torture people, you know, and all that, but he liked books, and he had this enormous library that was built in, in Nineveh. And, of course, the library was a little cumbersome for us. It was based on clay tablets. You had clay tablets, and uh, what we know as cuneiform. Cuneiform was, if you look at it, it looks just like a lot of long triangles put in different, the languages, Akkadian. And uh, he had these books in the store, thousands of volumes in this libraries. And a lot of it, of course, was a testimony to his exploits and uh, how great I am and so forth. And uh, here is a scribe, represents Ashurbanipal himself as reporting the destruction of Elam. Now, that plays into some contemporary politics because you mind my map back there, please, again. Um, yeah. Elam would have been this, uh, the, describing this here would be modern uh, Persia or Iran, this area over here. And uh, listen to what uh, he did with Elam. For a distance of one month and 25 days march, I devastated the districts of Elam. I spread salt and thorn bush there to injure the soil. Sons of the kings, sisters of the kings, members of Elam's royal family, young and old, prefects, governors, knights, uh, artisans, and as many as there were, inhabitants, male and female, big and little, horses, mules, asses, flocks, and herds, more numerous than a swarm of locusts, I carried them off as booty to Assyria. The dust of Susa, of um, Managdu, and uh, Haltimash, and of the other cities, I carried it off to Assyria. In a month of days, I subdued Elam in its whole extent. 
The voice of man, the steps of flocks and herds are the happy shouts of mirth. I put it into them in its fields, which I left for the asses, the gazelles, and all manner of wild beasts to people. Now, Will Durant goes a little further and gives us a little bit more explicit uh, description. The severed head of the Elamite king was brought to Ashurbanipal as he feasted with his queen in the palace garden. Hey, must have had some kind of wife. <laughs> she likes a severed head. He had the head raised on a pole in the midst of his guest, and the royal revel went on. Later, the head was fixed over the gate of Nineveh, and it slowly rotted away. The Elamite general, Dananu, was flayed alive and then was bled like a lamb. His brother had his throat cut and his body was divided into pieces, which were distributed over the country as souvenirs. Well, he goes on with some other bad stuff, but, uh, you know, you got to go home and sleep tonight. So I don't want to get you too disturbed with all that uh, gory stuff. But... Uh, now, why don't we do this then? Let's just immediately make a statement and I'm going to give up what I think is the writing, the overriding principle, the truth that I would like to describe as the header truth here in this chapter and then I'm going to develop it. God holds the nations. God holds the nations of the world accountable to him. And it seems to me to be very explicit. And the Lord's character forms the key to everything that follows in this book. The Lord sets himself up. Here is who I am in his perfections. This person of God in verses 1 to 3. And then you have the power of God, which is put on display in verses 4 through 15, which we, we read down through the 14th verse. His control of nature, his destruction of Nineveh, not a problem with God. And it was a necessary reminder for Israel who could be so easily intimidated and you know, threatened by the, the, the exploits. I mean, I didn't read you half the stuff for which the Assyrians did to their captives. I mean, it's awful. You, you did not want to. You would better, be better to just die than to fall into their hands. It's like ISIS. Now, let's break this down and let me walk you through the passage. And if you will, let your eye, you can take what's here on the screen and in your notes and fill it in and look at the text because I'm, I'm working off the text when I say these. First of all, in view of the fact that God holds the nations of the world accountable to him, that he is, God is committed to the protection of his honor. As a righteous God, he is jealous. Uh, we may flinch a bit at that word jealous. God's jealous. We think of it in context of sinfulness, and and it's a it's 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 a it's a sinful re, um, reaction, and it defies love. But yet there is a jealousy which is a pure jealousy, which is a righteous jealousy, and it's God's jealousy. It is God's passionate reaction against any infringement on His holiness, any attempt to share His glory. Anyone who wants to get in his face and try to take his glory, take his honor, take his name, take his reputation. And God demands undivided allegiance. This really, this theme plays a huge role in the prophetic message in the Old Testament as it comes out of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Did you get that? He wants our undivided attention and absolute loyalty. But this divine jealousy, this holy jealousy, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 11, 2. 
Can we reach over into Paul, the Apostle Paul, where he said, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul speaking. That is uh, earnestly protective <clears throat> or watchful. Exodus 20 and verse 5. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. So therefore, God is, he is zealous to protect what belongs to him. Let me give you Deuteronomy 6.15. Listen to this. See, Israel was put on notice about this early on in her life as a nation. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. <laughs> that will make you shake a bit. Listen. Isaiah 48.11, God's jealousy here is uh, my glory I will not give to another. <clears throat> he seeks to protect his honor. Now, in case you wonder, what, wondering, what does this have to do with his judgment on Assyria or any nation or on the United States of America? And I hope to get more specific about America and God's judgment on America and what we may have and what we are experiencing as God is jealous for his name. But well, that will probably be next next time we get together. So the very first thing that Nahum says is what? He wants to remind Judah of his majesty. Get this right, please. Don't go anywhere else till you get this right. And I want to remind you of something. This is a pronounced theme in the Old Testament. Whenever God gets a people ready for something, with its judgment, what he's going to do, he sets himself up before the mind's eye of his people or a prophet so that they won't quiver and quake in the face of what seem to be, seems to be overwhelming odds. Jeremiah, for example. Remember the almond rod, the boiling pot, the vision of God. A reminder that God was in control to Jeremiah. Ezekiel, his vision of the wheels, not spaceships, no. A reminder of the character of God. He's omniscient omnipotent. Isaiah, remember Isaiah 6? His vision of God, a glimpse of the majesty and glory of God. Now, right in the midst of this, he says he comes against in wrath against his adversaries. I got a question. Who are his adversaries? I'm really interested in the answer to that one. (laughs) I don't want to be God's enemy. And it would be those who oppose God's sovereign rule over the whole earth. To the extent that that happens. Now, we move along. So we're reminded, right, by all this, that we should never attempt to pick up the newspaper, watch the news, read a book, think about current events, contemplate the future, whatever it might be, without bringing God into our thoughts and weighing our ideas and impressions on God's scales. Please. Or you could be one of these neurotics. You just watch, watch the news, watch the cable. Well, I'd hate to have to just lie in a sick bed and watch that. I'd have to come home. Oh, what would I do to watch this? You know, the repetition of all the bad stuff. Oh, the bad stuff. Lord, you're in control. You are holy and righteous. You are doing, even though it looks, those, the, your enemies strut across the stage of history. And make their vaunted, braggad, their vaunted braggadocia against you. Look at all the evil. But yet, let's go to B. God is an avenging God. 
He's an avenging God. He'll protect his people. Remember, judgment deferred is not judgment denied. So those nations that declare war against God, they got a fight on their hands. And so I say is that if God should be against you, who can be for you? And God champions the cause of his people against their enemies. He hates everything that is opposed to his moral character. He hates sin. He will not let it go unpunished. And those who seek to destroy Israel, as in the time of the prophets, understand the significance of Israel in the, in the historical context. Those who seek to destroy Israel can expect divine retribution. Though I'll expand this just for a moment, a little sidebar. I don't think God is going to allow Israel to be destroyed even today, though she is under a judicial, in judicial blindness, according to Romans in chapter 11. She is, <clears throat> she has been, is being chastened. And yet, I do not believe that he's going to allow Israel to be destroyed. It's going to, you know, your prophecy, it is going to get a little bit scary toward the end. As the nations align themselves up against Israel, as the king of the north sweeps in, the pan-Arabic bloc, which would be Islam, as they cooperate in that pincer movement to come in upon Israel to destroy it, and then the king of the west or the Antichrist comes in and all that, all hell breaks loose in Armageddon in the tribulation period, all because of the attempt to destroy Israel, for Israel is the key, key prophetically to that uh, opening up a converted Israel, opening up that grand and glorious kingdom that will be on this earth. But I must hasten to add, too, that those who declare war on God's church, God's saints, are going to get their dues as well. This is what's going on in the United States of America right now, is that our nation is declared war against, when I say the church, I'm, I mean that church that is loyal to the truth of God, to his word. You have two different kinds of churches. And to declare war I'm, I, it's got to make you, in the best sense of the term, uneasy. What new organizations, just evil organizations like the ACLU, do you see this in the news the other day, this little school up in, was it Connecticut, um, Massachusetts, maybe Connecticut, where they, since one of the recent terrorist attacks, the students at the beginning of the day would say or sing, I didn't get this that clear, God bless America. Well, the ACLU got wind of this, and they have issued some potential lawsuit against the school that they've got to cease and desist and not uh, do that, say that, sing that, whatever they do with that anymore. This is the United States of America. And you know what? I'm, when I look at a book like Nahum, and when I know what God says, you want to make war with me, I'm going to turn you over to the consequences of your chosen path of disobedience as a people. All right, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I want to go to the third one. God is slow to anger. See that in the text? He's slow to anger, verse 3. Because he's good, he withholds his judgment a long time. Maybe we ought to all pause here and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. For we as a nation have deserved his thorough, thorough judgment. He's issuing it, but he's still giving us time. The wrath of God has been upon sin since its beginning. So we want to be right. We want to be accurate here. It has run concurrently with man's history. So yes, I know there is a judgment to come, but there is judgment. Romans in chapter 1 is judgment upon those who suppress ungodly, righteousness uh, and, and godliness, suppress it. 
And God will, and he is and will, punish all wrongdoing. So it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when and how. He's long on anger. That's the literal rendering of this word. And it was to remind Judah the significance of God's apparent silence during times when Assyria was allowed to abuse her power and authority. I mean, Assyria was just having her way with nations. Just, what do you do? Where do you go? Where do you run? Where do you hide? And so here lies one of the great mysteries of the Godhead. Why does God allow evil to bring so much pain and suffering? Why the Holocaust? Holocaust? Could God have stepped in and stopped it at some point? Could he have not set up certain actions on our part and the nations, but they didn't? They looked the other way. And you name the other Pol Pot in, in, in Vietnam and in, La- in Laos in um, Stalin. The millions, the millions. Stalin killed more than any of the other world dictators. Hitler, of course. The list goes on. The long-suffering of God gives sinners time to repent. And both, keep this in mind, both Jonah and Nahum preached against the sins of Nineveh. Remember, don't forget Jonah. These are companion books, Jonah and, and Nahum. Though it appears that it didn't, doesn't appear that Nahum actually walked on the streets of Nineveh giving his message of, <laughs> of judgment. But uh, Jonah did. Remember what happened? What happened? They turned to the Lord. And, you know, the historical records are interesting here. You can see a period of time in Assyrian history where there was a kind of a, it looked like a reprieve. A, they were not as, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, as colonialistic in seeking to destroy and the nations around them. It was about 150 years, 100 to 150 years after Jonah. And then, then along comes Nahum. So, there it is. Fourth, God is great in power and able to do all His holy will. All His holy will. He has the ability to deal with any situation. Verse 3. No one's greater than God. Memorize verses on the grace and greatness of God. Memorize them. Memorize them. Save them, save them, save them, save them. We have to do that to keep ourselves held accountable. And finally here, God is just. God is just. He's absolutely fair in the treatment of his creatures. Charles Ryrie says this way, excellent book on theology. He says, there is no action which he takes that violates any code of morality of justice. I mean, there isn't some something on some celestial screen out there that you could only get through some spacecraft and God has to check in and keep himself aligned. The the universal line, you know, the forces of good and evil fighting the Star Wars fiction. Uh, it's all fiction. You know that. I don't need to. But I tell you what, if I may, I will, that uh, so many of these of the generation know more about the, this, the Star Wars story and it's storyline, it's narrative, then they do the biblical narrative. That ain't good. We got work to do. We got work to do. I want to conclude. I want to conclude with four uh, statements. Let's see. Uh, yes. First of all, here's the conclusion, this first, first principle. All nations and peoples of the world are accountable to God. 
because of his established moral order. James Sire, in his book, The uh, Universe Next Door, he says this, Ethics is transcendent and is based on the character of God as good, that is holy and loving. That God is the source of the moral world as well as the physical world. God is the good and expresses this in the laws and moral principles he's revealed in Scripture. Therefore, God holds nations. God holds nations accountable to him in the light of his moral law. Now, I know the timing of this. So you look at nations that just go on and on and on with a fist in the face of God. We can think of the more flagrant evidences of this, examples of this, like North Korea. And just if you've read anything about what's going on in North Korea, by the way, in the back of our prayer sheet, I meant to, uh, well, I do have it here somewhere. I, I've been negligent here, and I I did something, I'll conf, uh, con, true confession, I was praying through the prayer calendar and, and, and I happened to pick it up and I looked, hey, there's something on the back of this prayer calendar. Yes, it's praying for the persecuted church and the voice of the martyrs. Forgive me, Lord. So I pray for those Bibles that are being distributed in Korea or that the, 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 the digital, the transmission of, of biblical to the gospel into North Korea, Bible distribution in Egypt and so forth. Let's recommit ourselves in this coming year, every day when you pray, to use that prayer calendar and let's pray for these nations of the world. And it's one thing to say, and I'm, I'm certainly not doing this in Nahum so that we can dance on the grave of nations that shake their fists in the face of God and say, yeah, 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 sock it to them, God. Get them. <laughs> what about the United States of America? But let's say, Lord, there are precious people in those places and those nations. There are hundreds of millions of Muslims. Muslims who need to know Christ. They need to know him. When you go by the Islamic Community Center up here on Jeff Davis, I have to remind myself, just pray, look, pray, oh Lord, those people, they need to know Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Secondly, the nations of the world are given evidence of their moral accountability to God through the revelation of God in creation and his covenant people. Uh, my, my, my point here is this, is that God does give ample um, revelation. He holds the nations accountable. They don't all have to have the gospel, but he's given it in creation. We know this from Romans 1. And he's given it in conscience. And he holds them accountable. Holds them accountable based on that. Thirdly, the nations of the world cannot escape their moral accountability to God by any means that they may disavow, they may disavow through their idolatry, empiricism, and rationalism, but to no avail. In America, we're trying to wipe God out of every form of public life in our symbols, our institutions, our literature, and our history. And we are driving nails in our coffin. We're seeing, I mean, apart from some massive revival, which I don't really hold out any great prospects for, this is my opinion, that we're seeing the crumbling of Western civilization. There's nothing that says that we can't go. You know, Assyria lasted for about, I did the math on this, if I, uh, over <clears throat> a couple of hundred years. 
Assyria that's might that's strutting across bullying and killing and 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 ruling the empires of the being the ruling empire America what are we 200 and what years I'm just going back to 1776 we're there's no guarantee that that as America as we know it will last forever no we may really be shocked we could come back in 100 years and see what is left no no guarantee and finally, fourthly, the nations of the world, <clears throat> the nations of the world are given enough time to respond to God's grace in his revelation. He does. And we, have, we leave that with God. We say, Lord, why would you allow this nation to go on? And it's just its insolence and arrogance. China, just the suffocating, suffocating anti um, anti-God, and, you know, it's, it's commitment to atheism. Uh, yeah, it, it accommodates uh, Christianity, and thankfully so, to some extent. But how long, Lord? How long? You know, it's a little interesting text over in Genesis 15. And uh, this statement has intrigued me. It's in the Genesis 15, 14 through 16. Well, the Lord said of the Canaanites, he says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And that ended up being about 400 years. That he extended his long-suffering, his grace, for those wicked peoples to respond and turn to his revelation. And if you respond to his revelation, Romans 1, he gave you more. And there was Israel. Israel was the repository of gospel truth. Though, yes, it was a centripetal effect in the Old Testament. Israel didn't go out to the nations with scrolls of Isaiah preaching on every street corner from Spain to uh, India, but no, God put Israel on the crossroads of the nation right there between Europe and Africa and Asia. And as the great caravans and the armies and the peoples of the worlds migrated and transmigrated across, there sat Israel right there with witness, witness for him. I want to leave it on this note and uh, we're out of time, but anything here you want to chase for a moment that uh, we've got some more work to do we've just uh getting started we're going we'll go into the second chapter it'll be two weeks from now and read it through but any anything that uh, you're interested in here i can read you some more bedtime stories about some assyrian kings if you like some of the stuff they did very very bad i this was they were like isis on steroids um Lord, we thank you, thank you that you've given us the privilege to live in a country, America, where there is there is so much freedom and we've enjoyed so much sitting under the tree of freedom that you, Lord, have planted, planted because we thank, Lord, of those who laid down their lives in the past. The great legacy of the Reformation for us as a people. Oh, Lord, thank you for it. And may we now be people who are eager to spread this gospel. Spread this gospel in this coming week even. Where will you take us? To whom will you give us the opportunity to speak? Open those doors. Thank you, Lord. You rule wisely, infinitely in love. In Christ's name, amen.